Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Oil prices and Saudi Aramco. It's initial public offering. Here to tell us more is John Kilda, founding partner of Again Capital. John, always a pleasure. Where do you want to begin, the direction of oil prices or the direction of Saudi Aramco's initial public offering? Good morning, Pim. It's always great to be on with you as well. Thank you. Um, I think, you know, just so, uh, you know, folks at home, I know are seeing the uh, price of gasoline rise pretty swiftly now over the past several weeks. And um, I guess just to talk about how, we're seeing the oil market and gasoline prices react to the uh, imposition or reimposition of sanctions on Iran that are, that's going to occur on November 4th. Uh, international oil companies are already starting to stop buying Iranian oil. So that puts the scramble on for other supplies from other countries, which is tightening up the global market. So that's part of what we're seeing. WTI prices got as high as $77 a barrel. Last week, they've fallen all the way back to 74, just below 74 here, uh, on on developing things in this market. It's going to be a very volatile winter, Pim, as we get into the end of the year in terms of the supply-demand balance based upon several things, including whether or not China and India continue to buy Iran oil and whether or not the U.S. actually gives some countries a break and allows them to continue to buy Iran oil. John, is the price of oil moving higher vis-a-vis your comments to do with the Iranian oil sanctions driven by speculators bidding up the price, or is there a real lack of supply? Right now, I have to say it's sort of uh, buy it now while it's uh, relatively cheap, given what you're sort of breaking down and seeing in the market as we get into the peak part of the Northern Hemisphere winter, which is the peak global demand period, Pim. I know we talk about the summer driving season here in the U.S., but that's really the peak. And when you do the numbers, considering where the Saudi production is at a record level, Russian oil production at a record level and probably tapped out at this point, uh, it's looking like a crunch, a supply crunch. And so that's what got this uh, market really bid up. A lot of the other Wall Street analysts are really up their uh, price targets for year-end. There's several hundred dollar a barrel calls. I'm not in that camp. I don't think it'll get that bad. But uh, that, that's what's sort of on the table. There's a real buying fervor that came into this market. What number are you looking at if you're not looking at $100 a barrel? I think Brent crude oil, uh, which is at 83 right now, will not get much higher than 90 if it even gets there. And I don't see WTI getting much higher than uh, 80 uh, or, or to 85 at most. Why is that? Why? Just maybe explain your, your reasoning. Well, because I think there was some question as to whether or not Saudi Arabia in particular would come across uh, with more barrels, and they already are, and they have apparently have come together with the Russians to supply this market sufficiently. Also, too, what's not being focused on as much is the demand picture, which is being called into question now because of the troubles in China, uh, because of the troubles in a lot of the emerging markets who are getting crushed by the uh, rise in the dollar because they have to pay for their crude oil in dollars. So they're they're already paying the the kind of prices that we saw back in 2008 when oil prices got to $147 a barrel for WTI. So there's a real demand crimp coming, and there's going to be more U.S. supply, too, as we turn the corner into 2019. 
Okay, so you're looking at $90 tops for Brent, 80 to 85 for West Texas Intermediate Crude. Want to get your thoughts on natural gas just for a moment before we go to Saudi Aramco. Tell us about the trajectory of natural gas and what we can expect during the winter. Natural gas prices have gone parabolic to the upside, Tim. Um, and that is because we are staring down a, a supply deficit going into the winter of about 20%. We're 20% lower in terms of storage versus last year in the five-year average. It's going to make for an, an incredibly volatile price picture for this winter. We could be staring down supply shortages if the winter is at all cold, and these prices will probably spike uh, markedly. They could double, uh, if not triple, from here. They're at 327 or so a unit right now uh, on the first visit of the polar vortex, for example, if, if and when we get one. Well, just to note that natural gas prices are higher by more than 4% on the NYMEX today at $3.27 per million BTU. How high? Do you got a price target there for nat gas, let's say even the future contracts? I, I think, uh, you know, December, January future contract, futures contract uh, could see uh, upwards of at least 7 to $9. Seven to nine dollars. Yes. Oh, wow, that is going to hurt I'm a low. lot. And Tim, I'm yeah. I'm I'm low. I, I've seen estimates out there in the twelve to twenty dollar range. So that's a space to watch. All right. Well, we certainly are going to watch that with you. And John, now to turn your attention to Saudi Aramco and a potential initial public offering. What do you make of the timetable? Is it really going to happen? Uh, no. I I, I think uh, pigs will fly before that company gets IPO'd. Tim, um, this is uh, you know more just prideful talk from Mohammed bin Salman, the, the, the young crown prince who who desperately wants to sort of make his mark on the world by getting uh, Saudi Aramco on, on, a, on a public exchange outside the kingdom. Uh, it's just not going to happen. I mean, there's 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 really just too much in the way of, of patronage and other disclosure issues uh, for Aramco that's just going to prevent it from you know meeting the listing requirements of New York or London. Uh, or even Hong Kong, for that matter. Um, this, they're doing a different deal right now where they're, where they're sort of monetizing um, Aramco by having them buy the Sabic, which is the large petrochemical or plastics maker in the kingdom. Yeah, they That's want them to get... buy a $70 billion stake in, that, in, in Sabic, that uh, petrochemical company. That's right. And, and you know, that, that will give Mohammed bin Salman the $30 billion or so that he wants to play with. Um, but... You know, the, the, the kingdom's conduct, you know, in the region and other things that are going on, including uh, this mysterious disappearance of a noted uh, journalist, um, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, who went to the Saudi consulate in Turkey and has not been seen. Uh, it's going to be uh, these, these kinds of actions are increasing, not decreasing. There's still hundreds, if not more than that, of, of uh, princes and other royalty locked up in the kingdom. And it's just not a suitable uh, investment climate that's, that's, that's emerging there. So to try to list a Ramco uh, is going to be a very difficult proposition, and he's certainly not going to get the $2 trillion valuation uh, that he's looking for. Uh, right now, best I've seen is anywhere from $800 million, uh, to $1.2 Wow. All right. Well, thanks very much for being with us. John Kilduff is founding partner of Again Capital, talking about the crude markets and what's happening to the price of oil.
Our next uh, guest is Joel Stern. He is the chairman and the chief executive officer of Stern Value Management. And Joel has somewhat of a unique perspective because not only is he an active academic teaching in business schools around the world, but he is also the founder and chief executive of Stern Value Management, which has, over the course of many years, created a variety of methodologies for companies to follow in order to increase their economic value. And we're here to talk about the economic value of the United States. Joel Stern, thanks for coming in to our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. It's always a pleasure, always. Let's begin with a look at interest rates. I want you to talk about, is there a link between the level of interest rates and the performance of the stock market? Well, you and I have been friends for about five years. And over that time, I've pulled your ear so many times about interest rates. Maybe you should answer the question (laughs) instead of me. But here goes. I'll give you my best shot. Interest rates are a function of two things. One is the strength of the U.S. economy. And the other is the expected rate of inflation. So if interest rates are rising because of inflation rising, and people have been talking about that now for months, saying, oh, oh, we better watch out for the coming inflation. I got news. There's something else that can help us with all of this, and that is the gold price. And here's the reason why. The gold price is a function of the real U.S. interest rate that is after you knock out inflation. Now, we know that interest rates have been rising. Forget about the Fed. Five-year notes, two-year notes, 10-year notes, 30-year notes. Things that are not controlled by the Federal Reserve. They can try to control it. They can try to control it. But in the end, it's up to what's really taking place in the economy. If the economy inflation rate is rising, then I got news. The gold price will be heading north, not south. But guess what? The gold price is falling. How can that be happening? And the answer is... If the real interest rate rises, that's net of inflation, that is actually a good sign for both the economy and for a low rate of inflation. And that's what's been happening. So when I sit down in the evening and I either listen to Bloomberg or listen to some other news, uh, I don't worry at all. How come? All I have to do is take a look at what the gold price is doing. And guess what? Over the last three days, The Dow has been getting whacked really badly, over 200 points a day. Now, percentage-wise, it's not high, but it's still a significant thing. But guess what's been happening? The gold price has been falling, which means the reason interest rates are rising is as a signal to the rest of the world that the United States is the place to invest money. This is the place to come. Why? Non-inflationary growth. That's what's happening. All right, non-inflationary growth. Yeah. Does this have a political element? Because usually in the next paragraph of every investment newsletter is some prognostication about the midterm elections. Of course, of course. Because some of the policies that the president has been following leave a lot to be desired. Do you think he looked for this disaster to take place in the Supreme Court? Of course not. And did the Democrats look forward to it? I guess they did. They were enjoying themselves. And it looks like the House of Representatives could well fall to the Democrats because of the Kavanaugh experience. All bad, all bad. But today, unfortunately, with the polarization, 
unfortunately, almost everything is politics. There is some element of politics there. And what are we supposed to expect? We've been having this problem now for 20 years already. Would, would a Democrat-controlled House yeah. have a, a deleterious effect on your perspective when it comes to yes. the trajectory of the U.S. For economy? Sure. For sure. And what's the reason? Because if they get the House, then they're going to want the House, the Senate, and the presidency in just two years. So what will they do? They'll stop Trump from doing anything that would benefit the Republicans. And in other words, if, if, until now, the Republicans have controlled both houses of Congress. And so when Trump says, look at all these wonderful things I have done, well, there's no doubt he's right. He, all the things that he has done, he has done principally because he was in control. But over the next two years, if they lose the House, the uh, Democrats will be fighting with the Republicans on everything. But isn't that necessarily good for business that nothing will get done to the extent that they will be able to digest all of the changes that have taken place in the last two years? You know, the reason I laughed is that my teacher, as you know, was the late Milton Friedman. And Milton says it would be a good thing if the houses in Congress were in different parties' hands so that nothing would get done, and that way we could keep the government small instead of it getting out of control. Uh, did I enjoy that? Hey, listen, when I got to the University of Chicago, I was a left-wing liberal. He made me into a right-wing liberal. <laughs> so the answer is, everything matters. They'll be fighting like crazy because the Democrats cannot believe what happened in 16, and they'll be doing everything to undo it. Let's talk about one of the key areas of the Trump administration's push, and this has to do with trade and trade tariffs. Yes, yes. Well, I'm a compulsive free marketeer. I mean, why? Because what we learned at the University of Chicago, so important, is to ask ourselves questions about things we take for granted. So whenever something would come up, I would analyze it first through Milton's eyes, then through my own eyes, and my father, of course, would say, what's happening to you in Chicago? <laughs> because the family was left-wing, liberal, and that's just the way it was uh, for generations, okay? But the question is this. What is likely to take place between now and the next year? I think the Dow is going to be very strong, still continuing strong, and the market's going to do very well. No matter what happens to trade. I'll tell you why. My position on the trade thing is this. I'm against any tariffs. I'm against export subsidies. I'm against import quotas. By the way, the highest quality cotton in the world is on the west coast of Africa. The only way we can get it here, they sell it to the Chinese, and then Ralph Lauren makes it in China and sends it back here. Isn't that terrible? Why are we going through all of this rigmarole? It doesn't make any sense. Now, how do I feel about it? I'm in favor of Trump's position. Why? Because these people have been ripping us off for as long as he was talking about it. He is correct about that. And he is an excellent negotiator, and he will figure out a way to get the EU to let our foods go in there. He'll make sure the Chinese capitulate. It's, it's going to be in their interest to capitulate. When it's all over, everybody will be claiming credit for the good things that have taken place. All right. Well, we'll have to see what happens. But we <laughs> want to thank you very much for your views. Joel Stern is the chairman and the chief executive officer of Stern Value Management. The
The Brazilian real has gained nearly 4% against the U.S. dollar since the vote on Sunday that saw a far-right former military man win nearly half the votes in Brazil's presidential election. Now, this is just the uh, first round of the elections. They will have a runoff vote later this month. Here to tell us more about the situation in Brazil is Dan Cancel, managing editor for Latin America for Bloomberg, and he joins us from Sao Paulo. Dan, tell us the details about the election results. Yeah, good morning. Um, you know, heading into the to the vote, the polls were showing, uh, as you said, the far right conservative uh, former army captain Jair Bolsonaro were showing him ahead. Um, but his his performance Sunday was stronger than expected. Um, there was even the first print, you know, had him at 49 percent. So he needed more than 50 to to win it outright. He ended up at about 46 percent. Um, and his closest rival, who's, who will go to the runoff with him, was at 29%, Fernando Haddad. So beyond the presidential result, there was a huge impact on, on his candidates that were running for Congress and for, for governor positions. So basically, if you were on his ticket, uh, you, you, you got swept into power in a lot of these, these posts. Can you tell us some of the policy changes that uh, Bolsonaro is looking for if indeed he becomes the next president of Brazil? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the market, as you mentioned, you know, has rallied off, off the result. Uh, a lot of their hopes are pinned on one guy, which is the, uh, the economic advisor. He's called Paulo Guedes. Uh, he has a degree from University of Chicago. He seemed to be as one of the more kind of liberal minds in, in, in Brazil, who's keen on, on privatizing most uh, you know, state companies, shrinking the size of the state, um, pushing through you know, an aggressive pension reform. So that would be kind of best case scenario for the market. Um, but of course, his relationship with Guedes is relatively new. Um, he's been in Congress, Bolsonaro, for nearly three decades hasn't done much, to be honest, as a lawmaker, and no one really knows kind of, uh, you know, where he hopes to take the economy. So it's quite uncertain. Like, there are, there are hopes that, that they'll go in the right direction, but, uh, you know, if he gets into, a, into a, a battle with his economic advisor at some point, the guy leaves, uh, it'd be kind of floating downstream without a paddle. Okay, Dan, I'm going to ask you three topics. We'll go take one by one, mm-hmm. and just give me a couple of points and what you think people need to most understand about. Number one, the economy in Brazil. What's going on there? Yeah, it's just been muddling. Uh, you know, it's it's going to be a little better than one percent this year. Um, basically, you have these big reforms on the, on the horizon that need to get done in order to uh, grow more than than their potential, which Goldman puts at something like two to three percent right now. Okay, tell us about corruption. Uh, so Bolsonaro, you know, ran on a big anti-corruption platform. He beat uh, the Workers' Party, who's been in power since you know two thousand two. Um, basically on the back of saying everyone's corrupt and we need to clean up the system, blow up Congress and, and beat the establishment. So in some ways, this is a step towards uh, ousting some of the most corrupt sectors in Congress. We just don't know what him and his party will do in terms of cleaning up corruption going forward. All right. Topic number three, crime and a crime wave that's been hitting Brazil. Yeah, so last year it's been reported, you know, widely was was the most deadly year in terms of homicides. There were 64,000 homicides in a country of about 200 million people. 
Um, Bolsonaro's big, big platform has been crime and, uh, you know, attacking crime, uh, basically giving police the right to shoot to kill if needed. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the people, even if they don't like what he said about, you know, gays, women or other minorities think he's tough on crime, then he's worth a vote. Well, in that very context that you talk about the comments that he's made about members of the constituency that even voted for him, he's a seven-term congressman, and from the Amazon to the beaches of Rio de Janeiro, he won votes even among groups he insulted. How did he do that? So again, I mean, you know, people, I I spoke to several people who, who... even didn't even know a lot about, you know, what he's done as a congressman, but see him as somehow an outsider, like you said, even though, like you just said, he's been in Congress for years. But he's someone that is not from one of the major uh, parties. He's someone that is saying, uh, you know, we've been too soft on criminals, you know, drug traffickers and, and, and petty crime have taken over uh, the country. And we need to really get tough on crime. And so, you know, that has been his, his biggest message and one that's resounded the most with people. What role has social media taken in this campaign? Yeah, it's been huge. I mean, you know, uh, depending on, you know, which party backs you, usually d- dictates how much TV time you get f- during the campaigns. Um, and Bolsonaro had very little time on TV uh, or radio. But he had the biggest following on Facebook. He's got like 43 million followers. He was doing a lot of Facebook Lives. Uh, You may recall he was stabbed during a campaign event. So he did a lot of this stuff from a hospital bed. Um, He had a big grassroots kind of organization behind him that was very active, you know, both the positive side in terms of pushing some of his messages and then the negative side, which are kind of, you know, they were calling the trolls and the bots that that were very aggressive and insulting uh, his, his opponents. And just quickly, when is the runoff? It's later this month, right? Yeah, October 28th. So we'll have uh, about three weeks. There will be a, a few more debates that we hope will uh, both candidates will participate in. And, yeah, by the end of the month, we'll have a new president. Well done. Thanks very much for being with us. Dan Cancel is managing editor for Latin America for Bloomberg, uh, joining us from Sao Paulo. The topic now is biotechnology, how to invest in biotech successfully. Joining us now is someone who's managed to do it. Eli Kasdan is managing partner of Kasdan Capital, and he joins us now. Eli, thanks very much for being with us. I just want to mention a couple of companies as examples. Magenta Therapeutics, Gritstone, Neon Therapeutics, Bluepoint, Blueprint. rather. These are all companies that you and your firm invested in while they were private companies and they have since gone public. Can you offer a little bit of insight into your thinking and strategy for how do you identify the companies to invest in? Sure. Thanks, Tim, for uh, having me on. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, <clears throat> we, you know, our, our sort of hunt for good companies begins by um, thinking about uh, new market opportunities for technology, whether it's uh, sequencing, DNA sequencing technologies or diagnostic technologies or, in the cases you mentioned, technologies that, that create new medicines uh, for patients um, that don't have good options. 
Um, so it begins there, and, and we, we immerse ourselves in the dynamics of, of the markets, try to understand what it means to, to uh, be a good company, what the technologies you need. And at the end of the day, uh, what we've learned is the biggest determinant of success are the people. And so once we find all those vectors um, and we find a great group of people behind a company, we'll invest. And occasionally that, that company that we've identified is private. And so we've created in the partnership flexibility to invest in private companies. Um, I, I will say we, we hope never to do it, and so we really want to be investing in public companies. But in the life of the fund, we've done it about 50 times. Okay. Uh, the reason I asked that question is to kind of set us off on this path to explore some of the more recent trends in healthcare and biotechnology. And I'm wondering if you could speak about all of the research, the oncology cancer research that is going on, and where you see the industry right now. I mean, it is a, it's just an amazing time in uh, life science broadly, um, and cancer specifically, um, cancer uh, is a molecular disease by definition, meaning there's some error in the DNA that in different ways allows cells to grow out of control, resulting in, in uh, uh, damage to other organs and, and dysfunction. And so for the last 35, 40 years, we've been trying to understand that. Uh, the technologies have improved, and uh, increasingly we're able to uh, create drugs that, that fight it um, two of the companies you, you mentioned, their strategies actually are to stimulate the immune system to do its job, which is generally is fighting cancer in all of us, but in, in some people it, it, um, the cancer is able to evade or trick the immune system, and so it can't do its job. And so two of the companies you mentioned, Gritstone and Neon, um, are both trying to develop um, personalized immunotherapy solutions to, to fight cancer. Um, others like Magenta recognize that um, having sort of bone marrow transplants can really uh, reboot sort of uh, faulty immune systems uh, in, the, in the case you've described in cancer. Um, and so uh, while those are very effective, um, the treatments, the conditioning to, to make room for these new uh, bone marrow transplants can be very toxic and, and limit the uh, application of many patients. So they're trying to make it easier for uh, patients to receive bone, uh, curative bone marrow transplant. Tell us a little bit more about gene editing technology and that, how that is attracting either your attention or how people can follow it in a, in a specific way. Yeah, I think, I think one way to think about this whole field is that it, you know, um, uh, it's all an engineering challenge. The, the human body is the, 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 the most complex machine uh, we know and for a long time, we could not figure out how to understand it, let alone tinker with it. Um, we're getting better and better at understanding it, and there are now tools um, to tinker with it, gene editing being one, where this error that we identify in the molecular code that causes, in the case of cancer cells, to grow out of con control, we now have tools to go in and start to rewrite that uh, uh, broken code and make it you know, and correct it so that the cells uh, are, are functioning properly. That's, you know, that's the ideal. It's still very, very complex to do. And um, some companies have developed new technologies that, are, that have the potential to allow you to do that. Um, it's still early and still very hard, uh, but it's, uh, we're getting much better. 
Give you about 30 seconds. What is the biggest mistake you find when you meet non-expert investors in biotechnology? It's very simple. Uh, At the end of the day, it's management, management, management. And so people invest in technologies, but forget that very few uh, molecules jumped off the medical bench and ended up in your medicine cabinet all on their own. There's thousands of decisions made by hundreds of people, and you should always be investing in the people. Well done. Thanks very much for being with us. Eli Kasdan, managing partner at Kasdan Capital, speaking about investing in biotechnology stocks, private as well as public entities. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.